morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. As Dylan said, I'm Brian Hansen. I'm one of the elders here. And this morning, if you want to take out your Bibles, we're going to be looking at the book of Ephesians. And I thought probably longer than I should have about actually reading the entire book this morning. Um, but we're not going to do that, though I wouldn't be opposed to doing that from time to time. Because God's word is what we feast on, it is what we live by, and it's powerful for our lives. And so we are going to look at the book of Ephesians this morning. We're actually going to try to look at the whole book, <laughs> if you can imagine that. And just as a matter of orientation, um, the book of Ephesians was written by the Apostle Paul uh, to the church in Ephesus. Uh, this was a church that he had spent three years at, uh, laboring among them, teaching them the gospel, the things of Christ. And he had um, moved along on his missionary journey but left Timothy behind to be the pastor of this church. And so when you read the letters of Paul to Timothy, you'll know that he's the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And in this letter, he's writing to encourage, encourage the Ephesians. And after the greeting, we read in chapter one, verse three. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This morning, my hope, my aim is that we would peer through God's word into these heavenly places and that we would see something that maybe we haven't seen before, that we would um, be enamored and, and enjoy, uh, would just really want to, to pursue what God has for us. Uh, you've probably heard the saying before that a person is uh, so heavenly minded they're no earthly good. Have you heard that? Or, you know, this person has got their head in the clouds. And what, of course, is meant by that is that this person is pretty aloof from maybe the, the realities of the world, that they're, they're so preoccupied with uh, lofty ideas or thoughts that they are out of touch with the way the world really works or the way things really are. But I think if we were to ask the Apostle Paul, if we were to sit down with him for lunch, just have a philosophical discussion and go, Paul, is it possible for us to be so heavenly minded we would be no earthly good? Is that possible? And after reading through Ephesians the last few weeks and just meditating on it, I think Paul would say, no. That quite the opposite is true, that if you actually want to be of any earthly good, you have to be more heavenly minded than you might think you need to be. I was having lunch, I was... Uh, taking some seminary classes a few years ago and had a regular job and so my lunch breaks I would tend to uh, try to spend some time studying and so I was at this sandwich shop in Everett and I had my Bible open to the book of Ephesians and this older gentleman walks in and he says, hey, what are you studying? What are you reading? I said, I'm reading the book of Ephesians uh, for a class that I'm taking and he said, oh, Ephesians, that's a cosmic book. I remember thinking, are you like from this, were you at Woodstock last week? <laughs> like, what's going on? And uh, I came to find out later in our conversation that he was a retired pastor, but uh, I just remember thinking, 
yeah, as I've been studying, he's right. It is a cosmic book. We find Paul talking about these cosmic realities, these heavenly places. He says heavenly places no less than a half dozen times. He's got this cosmic orientation to time that's, as we just read, before the foundation of the world. And there are these cosmic characters, these cosmic players in these heavenly places, and he talks about them throughout the book. I gotta remember where I was at in my notes. chapter 2, verse 1, if you want to look there, we'll see that it sounds almost like he's writing a fantasy novel. I, I, I hear this, this verse and I, and I almost can picture, you know, this scene of this darkness over the land and, and the narrator is kind of describing the condition of mankind and he says the people were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is in the work, at work and the sons of disobedience. It sounds like a fantasy novel, right? It's cosmic. N.D. Wilson is a children's author and he writes fantasy stories for uh, children, although I think they're pretty good myself. Uh, And before any of you check out because all this talk about nerdy fantasy stories is like you're beyond that, don't go there because you're gonna miss out on some things if you make fun of the nerds now, okay, who are into (laughs) fantasy stories. Because Nate Wilson, he was reflecting on C.S. Lewis, another fantasy story writer who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He wrote the Space Trilogy. And Wilson says this, he says, Lewis wrote fantasy stories not because he was immature, not because he was childish, although he was in the best possible way. He wrote fantasy stories because he thought correctly that that's what the world was actually like. And then Wilson goes on to identify examples from nature and from numerous places in the Bible from which our modern fantasy stories have a lot of similarity. For example, he asked this question, when was the first wizard battle? It wasn't Harry Potter. It wasn't Gandalf and Saruman and the Lord of the Rings. No, it happened with this old man who had once seen this bush that was burning but was not burning up and he went into the Pharaoh's palace with a staff, a magic staff, and he goes up against a couple of magicians who have some staffs of their own, and they have a standoff. And the magicians turn water into blood, and they turn their staffs into snake, and then Moses takes his staff, and he turns it into a snake, and it goes and eats the other two snakes. This is reality. This isn't some made-up story that happened. We kind of shake away from magic, that's evil. It's not magic in that sense, it's not witchcraft, but there are some supernatural things going on in the Bible, and if, if we don't think that they happen, we, we're just not gonna get it, and that's where Paul's going. Another example is think about Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17. He has one of those, I'll meet you in the playground after school and we'll settle this kind of a conversation with the prophets of Baal. And he calls them up onto the mountain, Mount Carmel, and he says, hey, this is what's gonna happen. And there's hundreds of prophets, and it's just Elijah. He's the only one, at least at this point in the story, he thinks he's the only one. And he's up on the top of Mount Carmel, he says, this is how this is gonna go. We're both gonna put together an altar, 
We're going to put wood on it, but we're not going to light a fire under it. And you're going to pray to your God, and I'm going to pray to my God, and whichever God answers by fire, we'll know that that's the true God. And so he lets them go first. Go ahead. You go first. For hours, the prophets of Baal, hundreds of them are just crying out, Baal, answer us. Send fire from heaven. Show us that you are the true God. It got so bad that God, their God was not answering them, and so they started cutting themselves, trying to get God to listen. But it says nobody listened, nobody paid attention. Then Elijah gets up there, and he prepares his altar. And to make it really interesting, he covers the entire thing with water. Now, if you're going to light a fire, you don't put water over what you're going to start a fire with. But he prays to God, and what does God do? He answers from heaven, and fire comes down from heaven and consumes it all. And here's the point. If we don't or won't accept or embrace the fantastical, the cosmic, the supernatural realities, then we won't comprehend a God who is supernatural and cosmic. We just won't. We won't get him. I mean, let me ask you this question. Do you feel like when you be first became a Christian, there was just this vital energy? You remember back to that, and now you're like, and I'm going to church because that's what I'm supposed to do. I don't feel this connection. Well, is it possible that perhaps you've simply grown too sane, too smart, too down to earth in order to believe in things like talking donkeys, magical shepherd staffs, fire from heaven, rivers turning to blood, or invisible spiritual forces in the heavenly places. See, Paul writes in these cosmic ways because only by understanding them are the Ephesians going to be able to understand and enjoy God. So let's look at Paul's heart in writing the letter in chapter 3, verses 14 through 20, or now about 19, 14 through 19. Ephesians chapter 3, 14 through 19. And remember, Paul, we see here that Paul says he wants the Ephesians to understand the love of God, but he doesn't say it in, I want you to understand the love of God. He goes to lengths about how profound this understanding is that he wants them to have. And he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what he wants for the Ephesian church. That's what God wants for you, that you would be filled with all the fullness of God, that you wouldn't have a stale relationship with him, a cold relationship with him, but that you would understand him. And this is what Paul wants for the Ephesians, and so he goes cosmic in order for them to start to understand that. Now, here at Cedar Home, we believe that the Bible is the guide for us understanding reality. And it's the reason that we spend so much time on Sunday morning looking at the Word. And it's not enough for me to just simply say, here's here are these cosmic realities in the book of Ephesians. It's important for us that you see it in the text. This is why you should bring your Bible to church because it's important that you see it because you can do what I did this last few weeks and just go through and go, what are the themes in the Bible? 
What are the themes in this book? And so you have to open your Bible and start looking. So we're going to do that this morning so that we're sure, is this cosmic thing just something Brian's saying or is this actually in the Bible? So we're going to go fast through some of these. I believe some of them are going to be on the screen. I gave Gavin a heads up that he might get a sore finger this morning. So just be ready. There's just a few pages you're going to have to thumb through. And of course, I typed mine out so I don't have to thumb. That's cheating, I know. It's not fair. So first, let's look at these cosmic places, okay? Chapter 1, verse 3. Okay, do you see it there in your Bible? We'll start. Chapter 1, verse 3. Remember, we're paying attention to this scene, this cosmic scene that he's setting. He says, we are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. A few verses later, verse 10, that there's a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Verse 20 of chapter one, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Chapter 2, verse 8. God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 10. The manifold wisdom of God is being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Chapter 4, verse 9. Christ ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all in all. And at the end of the book, chapter 6, few pages over, verse 12, we battle against forces of evil in the heavenly places. It is clear that Paul has this, heavenly places are a thing, and they influence what's going on in our conception of who God is. So not only are, these, are, there, are there the cosmic places, but there's also this cosmic orientation that Paul has to time. So go back to chapter one, look at verse four. So some of the first one that we read this morning, it says, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And Paul's saying, actually, before that, before the foundation of the world. So he's going outside of your life, the span of time that you occupy or that your family occupies or that your country occupies or that the entire human race occupies. He's talking about a, a, a span of time that's beyond all of that. And in verses five and 11 of chapter one, he talks about how God has predestined us. And don't, there's all kinds of complicated things you can think about right now, don't go there. The idea is that we have a destiny, God has a plan. Whatever predestined means, it means that God had some plan had something to do with time from way back then when Paul was talking about. Verse 121 says that Christ's rule is not only in this age, but in the age to come. Chapter two, verse seven, God aims to show his grace in the coming ages. Chapter three, verse eight, Paul speaks of a mystery hidden in ages for God, or hidden for ages in God. And chapter three, verse 11, God acts according to his eternal purpose. So there's this cosmic place, the heavenly places. There's this cosmic orientation toward time. So the stage is set, if you will. But there are also some cosmic players, some characters, some actors. 
So in chapter 1, verse 20, we see first that Christ is seated at God's right hand and he's ruling over all. Christ ascended from earth and that's where he's at right now. He's in the heavenly places. Chapter 3, verse 10 says that God is revealing his manifold wisdom to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Now this could be angels and demons. The text isn't really clear about it. It's probably both. Chapter 6, verse 12, Paul writes that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against, and listen to the characters that are in the heavenly places he lists here, the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following, and here's the character, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So we're starting to see a story emerge, right? We've got the setting, we've got the where, we've got the when, we've got some players. But what about the plot? Well, the plot is cosmic too. Turn over to chapter four. I'm gonna be looking at verses nine and 10. It's talking about Christ. It says, in saying he ascended, Christ ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And so we've got the heavenly places and now Christ comes down out of the heavenly places and he is born of a woman. He takes on a human body and he lives out the plot, the storyline that God has for him and then he ascends back up into the heavenly places. So you see that? So we've got Christ comes out of the heavenly places, does his work on earth, and then goes back into the heavenly places. It's a a cosmic plot. And while he's on earth, he performs miracles. Now look out, we've got more fantasy talk coming. He turns water into wine. Blind people see, deaf people hear, people who can't speak start speaking. People who can't walk get up and walk. He walks across water, he calms seas with his word, He raises a dead man, Lazarus, after being in a tomb for three days, and he walks around. So there were several things that were part of Christ's plot line, part of his story. He also atones for sin by dying in the place of sinners. He establishes himself as a permanent, once and for all, high priest who empathizes with our weaknesses, which is what Chris has talked about for the last three weeks. He conquers death by rising from the dead so that those who are in Christ will never taste the sting of death. And then he ascends back into the heavenly places and then he sends us the Holy Spirit. And Paul says in chapter one, verse 14, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. And so down here in the lower regions, Christ has provided an anchor, a tether to him. And this Spirit lives inside of us who are believers. And that tether then goes up to Christ who is in the heavenly places. But who else is in the heavenly places? Chapter two, verses five through six. It says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we are simultaneously here in the lower regions with the spirit indwelling us connected to the Trinity, Christ, who we are also in, in the heavenly places. 
So your story, you're, you're living in the heavenly places. And so if you think that the heavenly places don't affect you, that what's going on up there doesn't affect you, you're missing out on half of the reality, more than half, I would argue, of what's going on. And as we've read, we've, we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers in the heavenly places. So Christ came, the plot line goes, Christ comes, inhabits here, does his work, he goes back up, and now the church is part of the plot. The church becomes part of this cosmic story. We're all on the stage, every one of us. 1 Corinthians 10.4 says that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. These aren't earthly strongholds. They're not earthly weapons. And so we have some weapons that we're supposed to be using to do spiritual, invisible, up here in this heavenly realms kind of work. So if all you can do is pray, you are waging war. You're waging war in the heavenly places and you're pushing back darkness. You don't need to be especially gifted or talented. You don't need to be strong. You don't need to be young in order to fight. This cosmic story is unfolding and we're all part of it. The choice now is whether or not we will play our part well. Are you struggling? Are you fighting against the spiritual forces of evil and fighting the good fight? Or have you gone AWOL? Are you absent without leave, abandoning your post? More concerned about getting R&R, rest and relaxation, than you are about doing your duty. You're going to play a part. Will it be a noble part? As the cosmic story unfolds, the church has a role in this heavenly drama. Look at Ephesians 3, starting in verse 7. This is the verse that really got me thinking about doing Ephesians at all. And what we see here is that this plot line, that now the church is, is the one who's holding a lot of the plot of the story. Paul writes, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things? So that through the church, Paul's mission is that so through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God has a wisdom that he wants to exercise in the church so that he can show off to the principalities and powers that we don't even see. So when grace is going out and spreading through the church as we proclaim the gospel and souls are turning, it displays the manifold wisdom of God to those heavenly beings. It doesn't really have a lot to do with us except for that we are a player in it. But what God's doing with it is something other than, than what we see. Do you see that? That he's showing off somehow. He's, he's having to proclaim to these heavenly beings. Maybe to the, to the demons, it's, look, you can't beat me. To the angels, look, isn't this beautiful? 
So let's think about how this cosmic orientation to reality affects how we live on Earth. We've had our head in the clouds, and you're like, yeah, this seems very heavenly-minded, and I don't know if it's earthly good. Well, let's look at how this affects how we live our lives here on Earth. First, this cosmic perspective affects how we should interact with and view the unbelieving world. We should not be surprised to find that the unbelieving world dishonors God. Politicians, your neighbors, coworkers, ISIS, this should not be a surprise in light of what Paul has said because in Ephesians, he talks about that these people follow the prince of the power of the air who is working at them in them for disobedience. They are children of wrath and we should have pity on them. We shouldn't find them as offensive, obnoxious. We should see them as what they are, and that's lost people destined for wrath, just like we were. And if someone would not have come to you with the gospel, you would still be in your sins and you would be an object of wrath as well. The fact that you are a child of God has nothing to do with how spiritual you are or how smart you are. It's by grace that you've been saved that no one can boast. There's nothing that you have, nothing in my hand I bring. You don't have anything. God saved you because of him, not because of you. And so when we see lost people, we don't look down on them. We have pity on them because they are helpless. And here's the deal. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and 5, Paul talks that the God of this world, and he, he doesn't leave this in just Ephesians, he talks about it elsewhere, 2 Corinthians, he says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. And so what does it mean for us to want to see someone come to believe the gospel? Well, it means that that spiritual force needs to be removed in order for them to see the beauty of the gospel. Can we move that spiritual force? We can pray that God removes it. We can pray that God opens their eyes. And so if we think that we can win them by all of our fancy arguments without praying for them, we need to proclaim truth. We need to proclaim the gospel. But if you're not praying, you're not trying to affect the very thing that's keeping them blind. There are spiritual forces that are working to keep people blind. They have been, the Bible says they've been captured by him to do his will. Their will is bound to follow their master who has them enslaved. And the only way those chains break free is when we go to our father and say, God, would you open their eyes? Would you remove these spiritual forces of evil? Would you come against them with your power? That's when you read that Christ is seated over all these powers and authorities. He can do it. And now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God and giving us the ability to pray and affect eternity is what we're called to do so that the, ga- the gateway can be opened so that they can see Christ as beautiful and come to him. But if we don't pray, if we don't prepare, if we don't ready ourselves with the gospel, if we aren't ready to give a reason for the hope that we have because we haven't immersed ourselves in the word and in the thinking of the heavenly places, then what hope is there for them if the church doesn't go and pray on their behalf and intercede on their behalf. Our battle is not against the lost, but it's for them. 
How can we possibly be of earthly good to unbelievers if we're not heavenly minded? Now another effect of having this cosmic perspective has more to do with how we live our life day to day. Life happens, it twists, it turns, and our reactions are often determined by whether we view them from a cosmic point of view or an earthly point of view. If you remember Peter, the disciples, and Jesus, especially the disciples, they were, I mean, Jesus wasn't doing this. When they were traveling with Jesus, they always had in mind that the Messiah was coming to establish this earthly kingdom, and they would argue about who was going to be greatest in that kingdom, and who would get to sit next to him in his right hand, and one of them, his mom, actually came. I mean, how embarrassing. Your mom comes and asks Jesus, can he sit with you in... But that's what they were about. It was an earthly kingdom. It was an earthly mindset. Then in Matthew 16, Jesus begins to tell the disciples that he has to go to Jerusalem and he has to suffer at the hands of the elders. And he needs to be killed and he's going to rise again in three days. Peter pulls him aside. Peter pulls him aside and he began to rebuke him. And he said, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. See, Peter had in his mind how the story was supposed to go. He and his other disciples would reign in Jesus' earthly kingdom. But here Peter is not working off of the same script that Jesus is working off of. Peter has written a story He has authored a story, and he knows how that story is supposed to go. But Jesus is reading off of a different storyline, a heavenly one. And like Peter, we can tend to take the pen from the author's hand and write our story the way we want it to go. We write the script for the other actors, the other characters in our life, we give them lines, We don't actually give them, we just write them. Most of the time we keep it secret how we expect people to behave around us. And then when they go off script, we freak out. Cut, take three, that wasn't right. You got it wrong again. Right, we've authored the story and they're not following it. And now, as I've been thinking about this, really for several months, I've been trying to pay attention to the things that make me angry, the things that frustrate me, the things that cause me discouragement, and try to diagnose, okay, what, what's going on in my heart? What am I doing with a storyline? And it's amazing how often my stress, frustration or anger comes not because of some breach of God's storyline, but because, quite simply, I wrote the story, and I was upset that it wasn't going my way. That's always a bit of a risk. When <laughs> Dan probably just deals with us all the time, but whenever us elders get up here, we're like, we'll, fix, we'll compare notes before, <laughs> before uh, we're preaching just to kind of talk about how it's going. And inevitably, God just, he's like, if you're gonna preach on that, I'm gonna, I'm gonna help you really learn it. <laughs> That's how this is gonna go. Because he cares about you. He doesn't want to fill the pulpit with people who can give a message in this theoretical way. And so when we say yes, <laughs> we know we're in for it. But it's a good thing. 
it's actually a privilege of having this role is that God works in us through these things. And boy, over this last few months, I've had more in unexpected inconveniences than I've had in a long time. And it, it took me several weeks. I failed the first 90% of it. I just like, I'm still getting too angry about this. This, is, this is, should not be a big deal, but I've written my story and you guys aren't following it. But finally, a few weeks ago, I started to, it started to take, I started to get some traction. And these inconveniences kept coming, but um, my perspective was different. I, I had to pray more. I found that I had to be praying more. You can't, you can't expect uh, your heart to change if you're not praying about it, especially when everything's happening in these spiritual realms. And I had to back up and see how I had written myself into this story with a much more important role than what was warranted. I'm not the protagonist in the story. I'm not the only guy in the story with a white hat and everybody else around me is wearing black hats or black suits and they're supposed to serve me, whatever the case might be. When I write the story, the story's about me. It's about my comfort. It's about how this whole thing is supposed to play out for me. And when I give you a line, even though I haven't given it to you, but I've taken a note and you don't do it, you're going to hear about it. But when I learned to let go and let God just be the author of the story, I was able to look at a lot of unexpected inconveniences and, and see that God was in the work in the midst of them. It's not that they went away. It wasn't what I had planned, but I was able to see, okay, yeah, God's, God's taking care of me. Just one snippet of a, what would be a rather long story. Um, I wanted to go out to the Wooden Boat Festival. Uh, was that last weekend, Dan? It seems like it was longer ago than that. And um, my car broke down on the way there. And there was a lot of things. I happened to break down only a, a mile away from the only Les Schwab that happened to be able to have mechanics and not just tire guys and could fix my car. And so I'm like, well, it could have been worse. I get out there and my battery still died even after they fixed it. I'm like, oh, you're kidding me. So on the way home, the car starts to die again and I'm just praying, God, would you just give me a wide spot on the road? That's all I need. Some light would be good, it's dark. Half a mile later, the only stretch on the other side of Deception Pass that's windy and dark, there's this neighborhood with big street lights out front and a nice turnaround and I pull in and I back up and the car dies. And I go, God, you got me here. I wasn't freaking out. I was like, okay, this isn't how I wanted the story to go, but you're here. He cares about us. But we've got to let go of the pen. I want to get dangerously serious for a minute because we need to be really careful that we don't write our own stories. Really careful. I mean, think about what Jesus said to Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God but the things of man. Peter's lack of heavenly mindedness was satanic. 
it was satanic, or was it simply satanic because you know, Jesus is the important player in the story and of course Satan's gonna go after him? I don't think so. I think Satan is against you and me too. He's against the church. He's against lost people. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that in our efforts, if any of them take the pen from the hand of God and start writing a script that improves our earthly circumstances without first being mindful of the heavenly story, it's evil. Listen to James 4, 13 13 through 16. You can turn there if you'd like to. James, he says this, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist, mist, sorry, mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. When I go back up there and look at that, I go, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there and trade and make a profit. I'm gonna go get a job and make some money. Where's the arrogance in there? Where's the boasting? I I don't get it, James. Well, he gives us, by contrast, why it's arrogance and boasting, because we didn't consider God. We didn't say, well, if God wants this, we just went headlong and did it. When we make our plans, we need to make them in submission to the author. If we make plans without consulting God, looking at his words, seeking and heeding the counsel of godly people, then we are, as James says, arrogant, evil, and in Jesus' words, satanic. Now you might think this is an overstatement, but think about the word author, okay? It's loaded into the word authority, right? The reason there is authority is because there's an author. There's an owner of the story. And when we take the pen out of the author's hand, we say, no, you're not going to be the authority. I'm going to be the authority now. You were God. Now I'm God. You're not God anymore. I am. Is there anything more satanic than saying, you're not God, I am? I mean, that's why the devil is the devil, is because he said, I want to be God. We need to be really careful about taking the pen from the author's hand and saying, no, I can do it better. No, I know how this is supposed to go. Later on in Ephesians, Paul says that we have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In Romans 8, 28, Paul writes that God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He works all things. He's the author. He has figured out what this plot is supposed to be like and what role we're supposed to play in it and how our lives are supposed to go. And so we have to be a people who are heavenly minded because there's a cosmic story that's being told by an author who will one day right every wrong, who will restore the earth to what it's supposed to be. And he doesn't promise that we won't suffer or be perplexed. 
He's going to write stuff into your story and you're going to go, uh, I don't, no. No, 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 no. This was not, this was nowhere on the radar for me. But he's going to give us an eternal inheritance that will make all of our suffering and pain and discomfort worth it. I mean, he writes it in so that the manifold wisdom of God in writing these things in will be displayed to principalities and powers in heavenly places and he will get glory for it. And we'll get to be ones that along with one day we're gonna be there giving God glory, saying God is awesome. And he redeemed every trial and pain and struggle I went through and he brought me through to the other side and I'm here. I want to close this morning with a quote from Andy Wilson, the author that I talked about earlier. He writes this. He says, understand this. We are both tiny and massive. We are nothing more than molded clay given breath, but we are nothing less than divine self-portraits, huffing and puffing along mountain ranges of epic narrative arcs prepared for us by the infinite word himself. Swell with pride and gratitude, for you are tiny and given much. You are as spoken by God as the stars. Clear your throat and open your eyes. You are on stage. The lights are on. It's only natural if you're sweating because this isn't make-believe. This is theater for keeps. Yes, it's a massive stage, and there are millions of others on stage with you. Yes, you can try to shake the fright by blending in, but it won't work. You have the creator God's full attention, as much attention as he ever gave Napoleon or Churchill or even Moses or billions of others who lived and died unknown or a grain of sand or one spike on one snowflake. You are spoken. You are seen. It is your turn to participate in creation like a kindergartner shoved out from behind the curtain during his first play. You might not know which scene you are in or what comes next, but God is far less patronizing than we are. You are his art, and he has no trouble stooping. You can even ask him for your lines. Let's pray. Father, this morning we have just skimmed and gotten a glimpse of your word that speaks about these cosmic realities. But God, we cannot understand the love of a cosmic God if we don't understand the cosmic nature of other things. And you have given us a story to live out. You have put us on mission on this planet to be ambassadors for you with your gospel, to push back the darkness and pray for unbelievers to open their eyes. And God, this takes courage. It takes courage for us to to put down the pen and allow you to write the story that you have and for us to have the courage to play the difficult roles that you write into our stories and to play them well, to play them in ways that honor you, that trust you. But God, I pray that that's what you would work in us this morning, that you would work in your church here at Cedar Home, that we would be a courageous people who follow 
our author wherever you write us and lead us. And God, as we just read, you, you're not afraid to stoop down as we ask for help and ask for how this should go. You are a God who's willing to condescend to the lowly and to come and walk among us. So God, let us not forget that you are our high priest who has made a way for us to come to you and ask for help in our time of need. Thank you for being that for us in Jesus' name. Amen.